Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another online service. My name is Roger. I'm part of the staff team at Chichester Baptist Church, and it's my joy and privilege to bring you God's word this morning. We're actually starting a new mini-series, um, looking at some of the encounters that people had with Jesus as recorded for us in the Gospel of John. In future weeks, we'll see how Jesus engaged with some people that society might have considered unsuitable for the kingdom of God. Uh, the kind of people that you wouldn't normally expect to find at respectable parties. But today we are looking at an encounter between Jesus and someone called Nicodemus. Nicodemus was respected, intelligent, influential, he was a teacher of the law, he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Uh, in every respect he was the kind of person who could walk down the streets of Jerusalem with his head held high. And yet he came to Jesus at night. Nicodemus was afraid of losing his social standing. Nicodemus was fearful of what other people might think of him. And right at the very start of this service, I want to ask the question, are we afraid of losing something in our search to find or become more like Jesus? Is the fear of losing social standing or something else a barrier to us in growing in our faith? Rabbi Nicodemus, says respectfully to Jesus, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Who is the we that Nicodemus is referring to? It can't be the religious establishment because they will be debating where Jesus has come from right until the very end. Is it the we of we ordinary people? Well, that's a bit rich, isn't it? Coming from someone like Nicodemus, who is from a much higher social strata. But whatever Nicodemus is up to, Jesus' reply comes out of left field. Truly, truly, I say to you that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Jesus, it seems to me, sees through Nicodemus's opening small talk and gets right to the heart of why Nicodemus is really here. Nicodemus is concerned about his relationship with God. Nicodemus wants to see the kingdom of God. A man walked into his local surgery and he sat down facing the doctor and said, Doctor, I'm delighted that you're my doctor. Um, you've got such a good reputation here locally. And the doctor stopped him looked him straight in the eye and said, unless you sort out your work-life balance, your ulcer cannot be cured. I wonder if we sometimes come to Jesus carrying questions that we're not quite brave enough yet to ask out loud, but Jesus sees through all of that and gets right to the heart of what we're asking. The man knows what the doctor's getting at really. The doctor's saying, you need to take some holiday, you need to work fewer hours, you need to exercise, that kind of thing. But the man is so flustered and maybe irritated that 
the doctor has got straight to the heart of his issue, that he overreacts. So what you're saying, doctor, is that I should retire early so that I don't die young. Is that it? And Nicodemus also overreacts. How can a man be born when he is old? Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? That's ridiculous. Nicodemus's actual reply is ironic because he's uncomfortable that Jesus has got so quickly to the heart of why Nicodemus has come to find him. Jesus is not put off by Nicodemus's attitude. In fact, he takes things a step further. He's already said to Nicodemus that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again or born from above. That Greek phrase translated born again can mean either, although Nicodemus has taken it in the first sense. But what Jesus says now is that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. There have been various explanations as to what Jesus means by being born of water and of the Spirit. A very popular explanation is that to be born of water is to be born naturally, whereas to be born of the Spirit is to be born spiritually. We don't know whether or not that is what Jesus meant. One alternative explanation is that both being born of water and of the Spirit refer to the same thing. They are two symbols describing one reality. The prophet Isaiah said, I will pour water on the thirsty land. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. And the prophet Ezekiel said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Isaiah, Ezekiel and the other Old Testament prophets look forward to a day when God would do something new, when he would come and cleanse his people and when he would come and live uh, by his spirit inside his people. And what Jesus wants Nicodemus to know is that that day has now come. That day can come for each one of us, but don't expect it to come for you like it comes for somebody else. Jesus says in our passage, the wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Some conversions are dramatic, like a violent hurricane, and some are quiet and unassuming, like a gentle summer's breeze. Some people come to know God after years of searching, and others are surprised by God when they weren't searching at all. Once again, Jesus' words are met with head-scratching by Nicodemus. How can this be, he says. Jesus, I don't really get what you're saying. Now Nicodemus was Israel's teacher, but not any old teacher. Jesus says to him, you are the teacher of Israel. In other words, if there's anyone who should understand what Jesus is talking about, 
it's Nicodemus. But Nicodemus's understanding was book-based, whereas Jesus' understanding was anchored in personal experience. Jesus said, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen. There were no professors in the ranks of the disciples. They were all very ordinary men. They had no particular book learning to draw on. But what they did have was personal experience. As it says in chapter 2, Jesus was doing many miraculous signs and the disciples saw firsthand what those signs were. The disciples had experience of Jesus. There are two women. One has read lots of books on parenting and the other has um, successfully brought up four children. Who would you go to for parenting advice? I know who I would go to. You can read all the books you like on parenting, but there's nothing, there's no substitute for the actual experience of being a parent. Now that's not to say that book-based uh, learning is, is to be despised, absolutely not. But what it does say is that there is no substitute for experience. The disciples have experienced Jesus' miraculous signs and Jesus has a whole new level of experience to draw on as he says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And then Jesus says something quite cryptic. Having said that he has come from heaven and gone up into heaven, he then says that he must go up in another sense. He says that as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So what does that mean? Jesus is referring to an account in the, in the Old Testament. The people were wandering around in the desert and being bitten by venomous snakes. So the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. Jesus says that he too must be lifted up, just as the bronze snake was lifted up on a pole. Not so that people might recover from their snake bites, but that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus is announcing well in advance of his crucifixion and ascension that by being lifted up, he is making it possible for us to have life. In the Greek language, there are no speech marks and scholars are generally agreed that Jesus' words end at verse 15 and that verses 16 to 21 are, John, <coughs> are John's comment on the encounter with Nicodemus. Now we'll come to John's comment shortly, but before we do so, I just want us to take a step back and look at the whole encounter through the lens of the symbol of light. Light is a recurring symbol in the Gospel of John. Right there in chapter 1, John has described Jesus as the light of the world, and Jesus himself will describe himself later on as the light of the world. And if you remember, right at the start of this passage, 
Nicodemus has come at night. Nicodemus has come in the dark. But what we see as the encounter unfolds is that Jesus brings his light to bear on, Jim, on Nicodemus's circumstances in three particular ways. Firstly, Jesus brings his light to bear on our motives. Nicodemus appeared to come to talk to Jesus about his miraculous signs, but Jesus saw right through him to the real purpose for his coming, his anxiety about the kingdom of God and being right with God. And it's possible that Nicodemus himself didn't know the real reason why he'd come to Jesus. Often we don't know um, our own motives or why we do things or why we say things. Sometimes our motives can be hidden from us. But we can't deceive Jesus. His light reaches into the darkest corners of our subconscious minds. Secondly, Jesus brings his light to bear on our thoughts. Nicodemus was a smart and educated man, but he'd formed a view of life that was now hindering him from uh, growing in his understanding. Jesus' light exposes his ignorance. Now, all of us have reasons for what we believe uh, through a combination of our upbringing, through our learning, through our experiences, we've developed a model of the world. And everything that we experience shapes and is shaped by that model. But the older we get, the more rigid that model becomes and the harder and harder we find it to entertain alternative points of view. That's why when Jesus brings his light to bear on our thoughts and we are confronted by the truth about ourselves and the truth about Jesus, for many of us that's a hard thing to accept because to accept it would be to shatter our current model of the world and who knows where that would lead. And then thirdly, Jesus brings his light to bear on our actions. In his commentary following this encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus, John says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Our motives are often hidden from us and our thoughts are often hidden from others, but our actions are in plain view for all to see. And if there are things that we are ashamed of, then it's likely that we'll do those things in the dark. But Jesus brings his light to bear on our actions. And when he does that, we have one of two choices. We can either scuttle back into the dark like an insect that's been exposed when a rock has been overturned, or we can abandon the things that we previously did. All this might feel overwhelming. We might feel naked and exposed at the idea that our motives and our thoughts and our actions are in plain view of Jesus. But can I suggest that actually this is a healthy thing? Until we own up to the fact that we have motives, thoughts and actions that we are ashamed to bring into the light, then we will never see our need for help. In the most famous words of the Bible, God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Did Nicodemus understand all of this? Well, quite possibly not. He appears on two further occasions in the Gospel of John. On one occasion, he gently challenges his fellow Pharisees because they are jumping to conclusions about Jesus, but they give him short shrift. And then on one further occasion, he helps with the burial of Jesus. But do those two things amount to someone who is fully committed to following Jesus, who has become a disciple of Jesus? Well, to be absolutely honest, we don't really know. But he continues to be a prompt to you and to me. Do you believe? Do you have eternal life?